As always, we'd like to welcome our listening audience that's tuning in right now by radio and WSTL for a live part of this service, uh, the message, and we're just grateful that they're joining us today and welcome them. I just want to comment before we get into the message about uh, Thursday night, the Christmas Eve service. It will be from 5. It will be out of here by 6.30 at the latest. Uh, we want to get you out, but it's a wonderful time to come together. It's a very family time, and it's a time of very special music. We're going to have some, un, from some different musics, different ways of celebrating, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it, praise God. So just encourage you to be here and then go about whatever it is your normal routine is on Christmas Eve. But uh, the season is all about Jesus and, and His birth. And it's a time of year when you can, a lot of family obligations, a lot of uh, pressure that we can have on us to get some certain last things done. You better have it done by Christmas Eve. Um, and just sometimes just cooking and things like that. It can be a time of year where there's a lot of pressure. Um, and we just need to go back to the reason for the season. You know, back, and this is a day and age when the world's trying to take that reason out of this season, and we are the representatives of Him in the earth today, and we need to keep that strong. Not be arrogant or belligerent about it, but be bold about it, at least in our own life, as we can't do it with others, and we will be able to do it. So let's pray as we prepare to get into God's Word. Father, we thank You for this time of year. We thank You for what it represents, that it represents the ultimate gift of love, that You would be willing to give Your Son's life and to send Him, Father, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To send Him to be born as a human being, as a mere baby, Father, in the most meanest, the, the, the most humblest of circumstances. And we pray as we're in this season, Father, that Your Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would get a grasp of this measure of love that you have displayed towards us in sending your son into this earth and then sending him here to die in our place that we might be delivered from the power of sin and from the guilt and the shame of sin into the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might become sons and daughters of the living God and Father help us to have a greater appreciation of that in this season especially, so that we may not only enjoy it ourselves, but communicate it to those in our family as we gather with family, to communicate it to those that are around us and whom we have contact. And we just thank you for those opportunities and the grace to do it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we started this series early this year about why are we here? And it's interesting because it's wrapping up now and it's really wrapping up by focusing on, on, on the love of God and what a greater time of year to be focusing on that than at this Christmas season. And so we've been looking at why are we here? Why are we here as a church? Why are we here as individuals? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why did once we got saved, did God just take us home, get us out of here? This is the only place you can ever get in trouble. Why would he leave us here? And it's because he has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for this church. I was praying earlier today and meditating about this, just this 30, this will be 30, we're entering our 37th year of this church's existence. Um, and why, God, would you not only bring a man and his wife from Texas up here to start a church in 1979, but why would you continue to grow us and prosper us and bring us through challenges that we've been through? And why would you do that, Father? Well, he has a purpose for us. Why would he bring you here? Why would he bring me here? And the story of how he got us here is an interesting message in and of itself because we didn't get here by our planning. I never dreamed I would be in this position. It was not something I ever asked for. I was a successful lawyer. I enjoyed doing what I was doing, and yet God had other plans for us. But those were 
here for a purpose. And you're here not by accident either. You're here by God's design. Nobody is here today, I believe, uh, on your own. You may have thought you chose it, but God's brought you here through circumstances. But why? He has a purpose for your being part of this body here and this body being part of the body of Christ in this whole area and the body of Christ universal. So why are we here? Well, we've seen the answer is very simple, really. It's the Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 15, that we are here to preach the gospel to all nations. Matthew, 20, Matthew 28, which we'll get into uh, at the beginning of next year, it talks about that we're to make disciples of all nations. So we've been looking at if we're here to preach the gospel, what does that mean? And we spent a, a, quite a bit of time looking at what the gospel is, and now we've been looking at what it means to preach it, that it means more than standing in a pulpit or standing on a street corner. The word preach literally means to herald or to announce something or to just tell something. And so we've been looking at what does that mean, and we saw that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus makes it very clear how we were to do that because he told the disciples that he had trained for three and a half years, taught and trained and been an example to them that they still didn't have enough. They needed to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power on high, and then they were to go out into Jerusalem, which is where they were, to Samaria, which was the immediate surrounding community, and then out into Judea, Samaria, and then uttermost parts of the earth, and they were to go and be witnesses of Him. And this is what we've been talking about. We've taken that phrase and turned it into something we're to do. But if you look in the original language in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's to, it, the word is a noun, witness is a noun, it's not a verb. It's something to where to be witnesses of Him. And the difference is if it's a verb, if it's something you go do, you can do it for two hours on a Saturday morning or you can do it once a month and then go live your life the way you want to. But if you are to be a witness, that speaks of our entire life. That speaks of how we conduct ourselves. That speaks of how the inner attitudes that we have. And that is a much more effective way to communicate something than telling people. There's an old proverb that says, you know, you should live something well enough so that I don't have to hear what you have to say about it. That's not the right way it's expressed, but that's the principle of the thing. So we've been looking at what does that mean, and what does it mean to be a witness, and we've seen that the greatest example of this is Jesus himself, because Jesus said in John chapter 14 to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, don't you understand that the words I speak, I don't speak on my own, but the Father in me does these works. So the miracles that he did, the powerful messages that he spoke, the t impact that he had on people's lives was God the Father living his being and his will through Jesus. And we've looked at scriptures that show that, that, that the, the sinners, the tax collectors and the publicans, they came to sit at Jesus' feet to hear what he had to say. And we've asked ourselves this question, if, if, if they did that with him and we're the body of Christ, why don't they do that with us? Well, there was something different about him and what was different about him is he was a witness of his father instead of a witness of himself. And so we've begun to look at why, what is it that Jesus did? What is it about the Father that His life communicated? And we've seen that it had to do with caring about people, loving people, that that's the essence of who God is. And we began to look at what this love was like. And we saw that this love has, and this is what we're really talking about, that's the title of this subseries, Boundless Love. Love that has no limits, no, no limitations. And we've seen in, in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus and, and prayed, asked the Father to do this work in him, which is what we believe God wants to do in us, which is that, that they would, he would strengthen them by his Holy Spirit in their inner man that Christ may be able to dwell in them. 
And I want to look that word up. I've seen it before, but I, I've kind of forgotten. So I, I was looking this word up. In, in, in John's writings, there are a number of places, both in John, the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John, where he talks about abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in him. That's a different word. That word basically means to remain in there, to be steadfast and remain. But this word, when it says in Ephesians 3, that Christ is to dwell in our hearts, that's the Greek word okia, which means literally to have a house that you live in. So if you want to know what it means for Christ to live in you, what do you do in your house? It's where you go. It's your refuge. It's the place where you're, you're comfortable to be there. I'm not going to ask you what you do in your house, but what a house means to us is it's a place where we come, where we're at home in it, we're comfortable, where we feel accepted and, and loved and where, where we can, you know, put our, uh, our, our uh, sweats on and put our slippers on and just be ourselves. And Christ wants to be at home in you, at home in His body, so that He can live His life in us, and through us, because then Paul goes on to make clear what that is to be like, because he says that we might then come to know, together with all the saints, that's all of us, what is the dimensions, what is the height and depth and breadth and length, or in other words, what are the boundaries of the love of God that's been given to us in Christ, so that we may be filled up with all of His fullness. And, and what we've learned is we're looking at what are the boundaries of God's love. And we saw a story that Jesus told to give an example of that. And it was a story where he talked about three men. It was a parable. And there was a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And it was a man that was beaten and left on the side of the road. The story of the Good Samaritan. We saw in that story that God's love, God's love will cross the street. God's love is not concerned with how, what are the limits of what I have to do. Because we saw that the priest and the Levite were concerned, and the lawyer about whom this sto- to whom this story was addressed was asking, well, who, if we're to love our neighbor as ourself, then who's our neighbor? And what the lawyer was asking, what are the, ba- what are the limits of whom I've got to love? And Jesus' parable basically said there's no limit. Because God has no limits on who He'll love and who His love. So we've looked at that. Then we saw the story Jesus told about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost and he left the 99 to go find the one. And we saw that there was, Jesus was teaching in that that the Father's love is such that every one was valuable. That it made no sense economically to, 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 to leave 99 just to go get one because after all you want the majority. But he's willing to go get one that's lost. And then we saw another parable where we saw the story of, of, of the prodigal son because the prodigal son was not a son that got lost. The prodigal son was a son that rebelled, decided to take his inheritance and make his own way and prove himself. And we saw that the father in that story didn't chase after him, but he was looking for him. He was longing for him. So that whether you're lost or whether you're a prodigal, you're, God, you're still within the purview of God's love. You're still within the purview of God's love. And then we saw last time that in Romans chapter 5, God loves His enemies. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to demonstrate God's love. The demonstration of God's love is that while we were all enemies... See, we're sitting in church. We love God. We've just had a wonderful time of praise and worship. But you didn't get here because you chose to be here. You got here because God loved you enough while you were His enemies. While we were His enemies... God loved us enough to send His own Son to die in our place. And we've looked at that. We looked at, um, uh, uh, we looked at that also that uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told in the, par- in, the, um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, 
he tells his disciples and tells us that, that what, how we're to act towards others, that we're not just to love those that love us, but we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those that despitefully use us. And this is where we ended last time. So that you may be like your Father who is in heaven, which means God loves people that are despitefully using Him. And this is where we have to renew our mind. Because what we do is we read the Bible, we come to church, we know we're supposed to love people, but we love them through our terms. And this is what we're learning. God, if you're, if you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. Because you can't be in Him and Him not be in you. And if Christ is in you, He wants to live His life and express His love, not just in you, but through you. And He has no limits on who He wants to love through you. We place the limits by our own understanding of what love is like and by our own willingness of what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. So when we're unwilling to expand those limits, then we're limiting what God can do through us. And God's heart is grieved by that. So we're going to look a little further at this this morning. We're going to look at another example of this. Um, go with me to Matthew 25, and I've got to share with you as we get into this. This is the story in the Bible that makes me the most uncomfortable. This is one of my least favorite scriptures in the Bible for several reasons. It's hard, a little hard to understand, and it's, it's, it, it, it confronts some things. And I want to go through this story, but I want to preface it by several things. First of all, this is in a, this is the end of, or almost the end of, two chapters, and of course this was not written in chapters, where Jesus is talking about the end times. Starts in chapter 24, the disciples ask him some questions about what the end is going to be like, talks about the temple, and he goes through several parables, and these parables are basically about getting ready for the end time, and there's some series I'm going to do next year on are you ready, and what we need to do to get ready, because he is coming again. He came once, and that's what we celebrate, but He's coming again, and the question is, are you ready? Are we ready? And so, Jesus was talking about certain things to do to make sure we're ready, and He talks about the parable of the talents, He talks about the parable of the, of the, of the, of the wise virgins and, virgins and the unwise virgins, and all of that is about being ready in different aspects of that. So this is, story is in the context of that. It's in the context of Jesus talking about being ready for what's going to happen down the road. Having shared that, I want to tell you what this, that this story, if you go and look at commentaries, it, you'll, get a different, you'll get a different interpretation for each different commentary because, it, it, because it's, it's a challenging story. So, but I want to go through this, and I, I only did this after some prayer, that this is okay, because there's one point I want to see us to see out of this. So don't get sidetracked by these other issues, and as we go through them, I'll tell you what those issues are. I don't want you sidetracked, because to be honest with you, nobody knows exactly what the answer is to these questions, which may mean that's not what it's in here for. All right. So let's begin to go through this. We're going to pick up in Matthew 25 at verse 31. He's talking about when the Son of God comes back. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered together with Him, and will separate them one from another, the sheep, as a sheep shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. 
Now, some people believe that what this means is that there will be a time when the nations are literally judged as nations based on how they treated Israel. And, and, and that there's some reason for believing that. There are others that will tell you that's not what this has to do with all. It just has to do with all people. And, and because there's a difference on that, I don't want to get into that because I don't have the answer for you. But I'm going to tell you one point in here that I believe is God spoke to me when I was praying about this a year ago, which is what we're going to talk about today. Okay, verse 33. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So obviously there's some separation going on. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And this is why. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Verse 36, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Now stop there a second. What we're learning is what are the boundaries of this love? What are the limitations of this love? And we looked at the most powerful one still, I think, is the story of the Good Samaritan because the man crossed the street, treated the injured man's wounds, and basically said, whatever he needs to make him whole that I have, it's his. So he wasn't looking at what's, how little do I have to do or how much do I have to do. He was looking at this man's needs and it says, Jesus said, he was moved with compassion. The Levite didn't have compassion and the priest didn't have compassion. But the Samaritan had compassion on the wounded man, had compassion on his needs. And that compassion moved that, that, that uh, Samaritan to do whatever it took and to pay whatever it cost that he had available to meet that man's needs. Now we're looking at a story where Jesus is basically talking about two different groups and he's talking about this is the basis of this decision is it's on what you did for me. You see that? Because look what he says. And the king will answer, verse 40, and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, from the everlasting fire, to enter the everlasting fire, prepared for the devils and angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. And naked, and you did not clothe me. And I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit to me. And they will answer to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And his answer, he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And let me tell you what it's not talking about. He's not talking about how you get into heaven. Because if he's talking about how you got it in heaven, you've got to rip out Romans, you've got to rip out Galatians, 
You've got to rip out Colossians. You've got to rip out the first half of Ephesians. You've got to rip out all of Paul's writings because all of Paul's writing, most of Paul's writings is to establish that we're not saved by the works that we do, but we're saved by faith in the works that Christ did. So don't read this and now say, oh my goodness, I've got to go out right now. I've got to leave here and go downtown and I've got to take all my clothes off and they give them to the, I've got to go do, oh, I've got to lie. Don't read it that way because that's, you've got to take it in context of the whole Bible. So what are we looking at? This is interesting. Let's go back because we're talking about who's our neighbor. We're talking about who are we to, who are we to allow God to love through us. And let's go back to verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Notice that I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Notice Jesus didn't say, look, the reason you're getting into heaven is because you did all these good things for people. You were a loving, caring person. And the rest of you guys, you don't get in because you weren't loving enough and you weren't caring enough, and you didn't give enough. The key here is Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When you did it unto the least of these, you did it as if it were done for me. We're talking about the limits of this love. So what Jesus is saying here is that I am identified with the least of these. I'm identified with that prisoner that's in jail because he was selling drugs. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm identified with that prisoner that's in jail for the most horrible, heinous crime you can imagine that we would look at and say, oh, God could never love somebody like that. They deserve to be in jail. They may deserve to be in jail. But we all deserve to be in hell. See, Christ was willing to identify with you when you were lost. Christ was willing to love you and love me, not from a distance, but to be identified with us. We're going to celebrate on Friday morning, and Thursday night we'll celebrate it here. We're going to celebrate that God was so willing to be identified with us that He came and took on flesh. We're talking about the limits of this love. God was willing to step out of heaven step out of all His glory, and John 1.14 says, and the Word became flesh, took on human flesh, and dwelt among us, so that we could behold the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It says in Hebrews, that He did this so that He could be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, so that He could have sympathy and understanding of what you're going through. God was willing to be identified with you. And He didn't come to be identified with you once you became a teacher in the children's ministry or once you became an usher in church 
or once you became an elder, or once you became a minister. He didn't wait to become a... He became identified with us in the filth of our sin. Just as the Father's heart was still identified with that Son when He was working in the pig slop. Father's heart was still looking for Him. Father's love was still longing for Him because we know that because when the Son came back, the pig slop wasn't cleaned off of Him and the Father put His arms around Him in that pig slop and the Father put His arms around you and me. When you've done it under the least of these, when you've done it under the least of these, Jesus says, you've done it unto me. As that really begins to sink in, maybe it will change how we see people. Because it's very easy, once you become a Christian, to start comparing others to us. And we look at what they're doing wrong. And in this day and age, that's not hard to find. We look at this group as off, you know in whatever it is they're off into, and it may not even be drugs, it's just things that are offensive to God. And God hates sin, but don't forget, although He hates sin, He loves the sinner. And the church often mixes those two up. And we get angry at what disagrees with us, sometimes because we're threatened by it. And we become judgmental. And we learned last time in Romans chapter 2 and saw that when you're judging others, you're just the same as those that you're judging. Because Romans 2 says, don't, if you're judging somebody that's in Romans 1, don't think you're getting off because you've done the same things also. Maybe not the same details, but you've rebelled and been sinful just as they are. So maybe the reason the sinners and the tax collectors came to sit at Jesus' feet, and they didn't just come to sit at His feet, they came to hear what He had to say. Maybe the reason they wanted to hear what He had to say, maybe the reason they were drawn to Him is they didn't feel condemned in their sin, they felt loved and they felt a hope. There was a woman caught in adultery, and the, the religious people came and they brought her. If I recall correctly, it takes two to do that. And they only brought one of them. They brought her and they threw, them down at his, threw her down at his feet. Not them, they threw her down at his feet. And they said, because they didn't care about her, they were trying to trap him. And they said under the law of Moses, someone caught in adultery is to be stoned, what do you say? They thought they had him. There were a number of times they thought they had Jesus. And this whole, I got to understand this scene, this whole commotion going on, you know, and they're picking up stone, they're ready because they're going to, you know, they want to get her because it makes them feel better. And you know the story, Jesus, I'm sure he was quiet and calm because he's listening in here to what's the Holy Spirit telling him to do, God in him telling him to do. And he kneels down and he just starts drawing in the dirt and they're people out there wondered what he drew. I don't know. It doesn't say what he drew. That's not the point. And when he's done, he gets up. Maybe he was just listening inside. He says, you're right. You're absolutely right. Under the law of Moses, this woman deserves to be stoned. She's guilty as charged. 
Now let's talk about who's entitled to carry out the judgment. You're right. She sinned. You got her. You're absolutely right. She sinned. But let's talk about the other aspect of it. In a trial, in a criminal trial, there's two parts to it. In some states, there's two separate trials. There's the first trial to determine guilt or innocence. And once the person's been found guilty, the judge very rarely goes into the second part. What he'll say was, I'll set down a date for sentencing. In other words, the determination has been found that they're guilty. They did what they were charged with. Now we've got to consider the second aspect of this. What's the punishment for that? So we'll have a hearing a month from now where, 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 the, where the punishment, where the sentencing will be pronounced. In some types of cases, in some states, that's actually a separate trial to decide whether it's a capital punishment or whether it's life imprisonment. And there's another... So there's another issue to be decided is the point here. The first issue is guilt. But in a criminal case, the second issue is, all right, now that they're guilty, what do they get for it? And Jesus said, okay, you're right. She's been found guilty. No issue about that. She's caught in the very act. But now let's talk about the punishment and not whether she's entitled to it. Let's talk about who's entitled to administer the punishment. And here's the standard. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. So the qualification to administer the judgment for somebody's sin is that you never did. Which is why Romans chapter 8 says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Oh, this is good. And what he's basically going to say, there's only two qualified. He said, is God going to charge you? He's the one that justified you. So God's the first one that's entitled to, because he's never sinned. He said, all right, here's the second one. The only other one that's entitled, who's never sinned, is Christ Jesus. Whether Is he going to judge you? Well, that would be kind of silly, since he's the one that died for you to pay for your redemption. He's the one that's been raised from the dead so that you can be raised out of your sin and out of death. And he's the one that's sitting in, in heaven interceding for you. Why would he judge you? And by the way, they're the only two qualified. So Jesus says to them, all right, you're right, she's guilty. But the second issue is, who's entitled to administer that penalty? And the standard in heaven is he who is without sin. And I love what the Bible says. They started walking away slowly, starting with the oldest. And I've got to believe when, when the Holy Spirit puts a detail like that in, there's a purpose for it. And oh, my opinion is, it's because the oldest had more to remember. <laughs> Imagine that atmosphere. I mean, it was charged up. They came in there charged up. They had her. 
And either she was going to get stoned and they were going to feel good or they were going to trap Jesus and they'd still feel good. And they came up just so full of themselves. And there's such an energy. They were, wow, because they, you know, they were emotional. They would get worried. If you've seen the movies, they would throw dust in the air. They would throw dust on themselves when they get upset about things. They weren't like us New Englanders. They were passionate whenever they did. And so they thrown her down there in the dust and they're, just, they're passionate. They got the stones in their hands. I'm sure they're ready. And Jesus changes the atmosphere by kneeling down and getting quiet and not reacting. And he lays his bomb on them. And suddenly he gets very quiet. And slowly, one by one, they walk away back to their homes or wherever they go to plan whatever they're going to do. And Jesus looks around. Where did your accusers go? I don't know. He said, then, I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. He wasn't excusing the sin and saying, you know, hey, whatever you do, that's fine. He was saying, I'm giving you another chance. I'm giving you a fresh start. Here's the only one that's ever walked in flesh on this earth that had the right to judge her. And he didn't. He didn't. When you've done it unto the least of these, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. In other words, I am so identified with them that I want you to see me in the vilest of sinners because I love them. Because if you look at them through your eyes, if you look at them through your terms, you're going to limit what I want to do. Because if others looked at you, you'd never be here either. But I saw you. I saw you from the beginning of time. I saw you sitting here today. I didn't see you in that muck and mire where you found me. I didn't see you down on the street pumping drugs into your veins. I didn't see you living a wild lifestyle. I didn't see you with all that pride built up inside. I saw you not just sitting here. I saw you at my feet worshiping me in heaven. I saw you as I was going to make you. I saw you as I could, what I could do inside of you. I could saw you through the eyes of love. And Jesus is saying here, I want you to learn to see people the same way. I want you to learn to see people, even your enemies, the way I see them. When you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, my brethren. Jesus loves the least of these. Jesus loves the least of these. He doesn't write anyone off. They might write him off, but he doesn't write anyone off. Let's look at a, a couple examples of this. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Story of Paul's conversion. Sometimes little phrases open up whole doors and windows and opportunities of, to understand some things. I'm in Romans. That's why it doesn't look right. Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 4. Paul is on his way to Damascus. And he's on his way, just background for those that you may not know. You can keep that up there. Um, Paul's on his way to Damascus, and he has been, uh, the church is now probably 
20 years old, 10, 20 years old. And Paul was a devout, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the guys that would have thrown stones. In fact, when Stephen was stoned earlier, young Paul was holding the coats of the men that were stoning him. Paul was a, was a devout, sincere Pharisee. And he believed. So you've got to understand, you've got to be able to look back, because we know what the church is today, because we have the scriptures. We know the church is the body of Christ. We know that Christ came and established his body on this earth after he left and sent his spirit to establish a church. But they didn't know that then. They didn't understand what you and I have the benefit of understanding now, because they didn't have the New Testament yet. They were trying to figure out what this was all about. And so the Apostle Paul was very sincere, but he was very devout. So he was, but you know, you can be sincere and wrong. So don't ever mistake sincerity for truth. There are people that, that come on Saturday morning in pairs and knock on people's doors, and most of them are sincere, but they're deceived. They're sincere, but they're wrong. So you can be sincere and be wrong. You can also be right and be insincere too. You can have the right ideas and be insincere about what you're doing with them. So your heart's very important. And so that's what the Apostle Paul was. And he was so sincere that he had to do something because he believed with all his heart that this was a heresy, that this new way, as it was called, the way, was a heresy that it was going to pervert because what he thought it was going to do, it was to throw out the law of Moses and to throw out the old covenant, to break the covenant, establish, try to establish something new with God, and that was heresy. So he was determined, and back then, if you, had a, if you were a, a heretic, if you did something that was wrong, they didn't just dismiss you from the church or just say bad things. I mean, they would arrest you and put you in prison, because the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had their own army. That's the army that arrested Jesus. It wasn't the Romans that addressed you. It was the, it was the Sadducees, the Pharisees' army, their soldier guards, their soldiers that arrested him. So if, if, you, if, you, if you got off track, they could come and knock at your door and arrest you. And that's what he was doing. And he had letters from the Sanhedrin authorizing him to go to Damascus because there was a, there was a church started there that was growing and doing some exciting things. And he went there to arrest them and bring them back and... Ju- jail them, and some of them were to be executed. So this is where Paul is. So he is, he is, he is passionately believing, and he's, he's been, and he's been good at this. He's arrested hundreds, if not thousands of Christians, jailed them. So he is, he's the one person you don't want to hear is in town. You don't want to hear, Paul's in town. Saul, his name was Saul back then. Saul is in town. And he's on his way to Damascus. And see, here's another example of not limiting who, what God wants to do. Because if you or I were to look at Saul and say, God needs to just get rid of him. Get, get him out of here because that man's just nothing but trouble. He's way off track. He's dangerous. We've got to get rid of him. And we had, and, and, but God had other plans for Saul. And I'm glad he stuck with those plans. Because Saul wrote, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And the mo- one of the most critical doctrines of the church was, un- was revealed to Paul because Jesus personally appeared to him to teach it to him. So Paul had it on good authority. So that's the background here. So we'll pick up at verse 4 of, of, of 
a voice appears, and a, light, a strong light shines from heaven. Verse 4, then he fell to the ground. And this is noontime in Palestine, where the sun is at its peak, and it is absolutely bright there. And this light that shone overshadowed that light. And a voice spoke to him, and he fell off of his horse. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But what Jesus is in heaven because he's speaking down out of heaven. So how could Saul be persecuting Jesus if Jesus is in heaven and it's just the church that's down here? Because Christ identifies himself with the church so much that we're called the body of Christ. If you get up in the middle of the night and you stub your toe, and when your spouse gets up the next morning, you say, what was that racket about? You didn't, stub, you didn't say, my toe got stubbed. I stubbed my toe. Because you identify your big toe as part of you. Even though it, it's at the other end of you. Even though it may be an unseemly part, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 even though it may be downright ugly. It's still you, because when it hurts, when you stubbed it, all the rest of you gets alerted to attention, even if it was 2.30 in the morning and you were half asleep, which is why your toe ran into that door jam. You're going to start jumping around. You're, you're, all of you becomes awake. You're gonna, your hands are going to grab that toe. The other foot now starts coming into doing double duty, and you start doing everything to protect that toe and take care of that toe. You may even said some things about that toe. And you're jumping around, and all their focus is on that toe, because it's your toe You stubbed your toe. So you have identified yourself with your big toe, as ugly as it may be. If you get a pain in your side, you have a pain in your side because it's your side that hurts. So you, your mind, identifies you with your body because they're one, and Paul uses that example in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about division in the body, which is what he was addressing in the church of Corinth, because they had the gifts of the Spirit operating, and they were fighting over them, and they were divided over them. They were even divided over whose camp they were in. Some said, well, Paul came through here, and he started this church. We're of Paul. And others said, yeah, but Apollos was a great teacher. He came along afterwards. We're of Apollos. We're of this group. We're of the... We're, we're of the Baptists, and we're of the Pentecostals, and we're, oh no, excuse me, we're of Paulus and Paul. And Paul says, has, has Christ been divided? Has he suddenly been sl- split up? And, and they brought that over into understanding the gifts of the Spirit because they weren't flowing together as one. Two of the main things that are important to God, and maybe the most important, is love and unity, and they go together. How can you be walking in love and be in disunity? 
How can you love God? First John says, and hate your brother. In fact, years ago, I was out. We were living in a community north of northern part of Massachusetts, and we were living for a couple of years on a, on a, a rented estate. We were renting it in a big house, and it had 30 acres of land in, in the church I was pastoring at the time I was able to spend I worked out of the home, my home for part of the time and I always go off in the fields and just pray and I, one morning I was just oh, I was just having a wonderful time with the Lord and God and I were just so good and my wife's home with four kids and I'm out having a wonderful time with the Lord and my wife's home with four kids and I'm just I'm beginning to get you know pretty impressed with what a wonderful time I'm having worshiping God and I'm the man of God, and God's speaking to me, and, I'm the, and at the end of all this wonderful time, the Lord spoke to me more clearly than anything else I heard. And he says, son, you, you really feel like you're being spiritual now? I said, yeah, Lord, this is wonderful. He says, well, let me tell you what I see. Whenever he does that, you better duck. Because <laughs> he doesn't see what you see. He said, the measure, from what I see, the measure of your spirituality isn't what you're doing out here in the field with me the measure of your spirituality, what you're going to do when you walk home and how you treat your wife and your family. That's my measure of spirituality. And I wanted to say, give me scripture for that, but I already had it. <laughs> how can I say love, I love God? And that's not just feeling warm fuzzies for Him. When I don't have that same love for my neighbor, especially my wife, but for the church especially, because it's His body. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's talking about this unity. And he says, you're to walk, because of who you are, because you're the body of Christ, you're to walk in that unity. And Because he notice he doesn't say in the beginning of Ephesians 4, he doesn't say, become unified, church. What he says is maintain, keep that unity, protect that unity, which means we were born again into a unity, protect it, watch over it, keep it. And at one point he says there, because of that, do not, te- do not lie to one another. Tell each other the truth because you are members one of another. Not just because it's a good thing to tell the truth, but we're to be honest with each other in love because we belong together to Him. And I've shared this with you. On a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever we come together, God doesn't see us as some 700 people, individuals coming together and gathering at Faith Christian Center on a Sunday morning. God sees us as one body, His body, the body of Christ. And we're individually members of it, and we have different aspects, different gifts. Outwardly, we look very differently. But inwardly, if you could see in the spirit realm, what you would see is what holds us together is the spirit of unity. The same spirit that's in you is in me. This outward house may have a different paint job than you have. I may have different color skin than you have, but inwardly we're the same. That's what joins us together. And that's Christ in us. And it's His body. Okay, so the point is this, is... is is Paul, did I get all this out of Paul's trip? Okay. All right. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus didn't just take it personally. In his mind, in reality, we are him and he is us. We are him and he is us. It goes on. Paul doesn't understand this, verse 5. He says, well, who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus isn't just saying, I take this personally. He's saying, when you persecute Christians, you're persecuting me because I identified myself with them. Remember what we're looking at is in Matthew 25. Jesus said, I not only identify with the church because it is me, but I identify with those that aren't me yet. If you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 3. You've done it unto the least of these. You've done it unto me. Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 17, but before we go there, I want to just tell you what he's talking about here. He's talking about putting on the new man, putting on who we've been made to be in Christ. And, and above all, he says, put on love, verse 14, which is the bond of perfection. And then let peace rule in your heart. Talks about how we're to talk to one another. And then in verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you do, by the way, when you speak things, you're doing something. Whatever you do in word, when you speak, and whatever you do when you act, when you do something, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's sometimes at the end of the service, I'll say, not often, but sometimes I'll say, remember wherever you're going, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, you're taking Him wherever you go. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. That's a little, that sounds kind of spiritual, in the name of the Lord, in place of. So when Jesus says in John, uh, whatever you ask in my name, he's literally saying, in my place. In my place. Whatever you do, wh- whatever you do, whatever you do, do all of it as if I were doing it. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, in my Bible, There's a new section. But in this original letter, there's no new section. So it's a continuation of the same idea. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Why? Because when you do that, you're doing it in the name of the Lord. So, I remember one time, it's the the loudest I've ever heard God speak to me. I was still the lawyer, I was practicing law, I used to go out and pray at noontime, and I was, I don't know what was going on in our, in our family, but I was frustrated about something, and I was talking to God about what my wife was, I don't know what it was, I was complaining to him about something. And he let me go on for a little while, and I heard as clearly, I heard an audible voice, I've never heard it before, and I don't want to hear it again. He said, stop, that's my daughter you're talking about. And a cold sweat broke out on me. It shook me. God was telling me, and it changed how I prayed. God was telling me that woman was his daughter before she became my wife, and he entrusted his daughter to me. And I was going to have to give an account 
of how I treated his daughter. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord or unto the Lord. The way I relate to my wife is to be how I would relate to him. It's if you've done it under the least of these, it certainly then should be as you've done it under the closest of these. You've done it unto me. Jesus wants us to start seeing people, him in other people. The way we treat other people is how we're treating him. Because it's very easy to come to church and lift our hands. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. I give you all, Lord. And go out that door and get angry at the waitress. Judge the parking, the, the, the gas station attendant, if there still are any. Get mad at your kids about something. And I'm not saying, you know, we, we're perfect. But we begin to harbor attitudes in our heart. Judgmental attitudes. God has been working on me this year. Oh, it's painful. And attitudes I've had and down deep in my heart I didn't know were there or still there. Just looking at people the wrong way. So you do that yet and so do you. Because <laughs> none of us are there yet. But He's at work in us to cleanse us to bring up and bring out attitudes towards people especially where we very subtly look down our nose at them and think, well, they're not, you know, I, I would never do that. Don't ever say you'd never do something. Don't ever say you'd never do something. All right, ladies, here we go. Husbands, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things. Why? So you don't get spanked? No, because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Why? Because when you do that, this is all carrying out what he said in verse 17. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Okay. Do all in the name of the Lord. Okay, let's go over to James chapter 2. You all seem very excited about all this. The only trouble we have in life, and I'm not saying the only problems we have, there's a difference between problems and trouble. You can have no trouble in the middle of problems. Trouble is stuff you bring on yourself. Problems are things that can come from the outside. And you can be in the midst of the worst problems you could have and still be at peace inside. If you don't believe that, read the story of Joseph. Because whatever happened to Joseph, and it was all unjust, it was all, I mean, some of it he brought on himself because he was bragging about what God's call, destiny had for his life. So, but he did, I'm, I'm sure, out of innocence. But, but, he, but, but all of that he went through, being thrown in the pit, being, uh, being sold to the Midians, to being in Potiphar's house, to being wrongly accused by his wife of, of trying to seduce her, and, by, and just doing what's right, he ended up in prison. And then he was, had a chance to get out of there, and the, and the cup maker, and the, the cup bearer, and the, and the baker forgot about him, and all of that happened, and, but Joseph maintained the right heart and the right attitude. 
And because he did that, God was able to use all of those circumstances to develop his character, to qualify him for what his destiny was. You have no idea whether what you're going through right now may be an effort to qualify you for something. I don't have time to tell you this morning, but I went through 10 years of qualification to stand in this office. And none of it was fun. My flesh wanted to quit, run out. I had other people telling me to quit and run out. I just knew none of it was God. So I dug my heels in and said, if it's not God, I'm not going. And out of that, God dealt with attitudes in me. He dealt with prejudices in me. He dealt with ambition in me. He dealt with the inner issues. See, the outer gifting, God can drop that on you anytime. It's the inner stuff. It's the character and the inner things that take time to develop. So we get sometimes many people that are, they, they have a sense of a calling on their life and there's a gifting God's given and they want to rush out and exercise that right away and they've not allowed God to develop the character. I'm going all kinds of directions this morning, but just trust the Holy Spirit. <laughs> to develop the character inside that God knows is going to be needed and then they limit what God's able to use them for. Are we al- willing to allow the Spirit of God to do in us what He knows needs to be done and to trust Him even when it doesn't look like it makes sense. To trust Him that He loves us, that He's faithful, that He's at work in our lives even though it doesn't seem to make sense to us. Well, I don't know why I got off on that, but I did. Alright. Praise God. James chapter 2. Did I tell you to go there? Alright. We're going to read verse 14 and 15. Well, 14 through 20. He's been talking about Um, uh, uh, he's talking about not just believing something but actually living it out he's not he's talking about it's not it's not just what you believe inside the evidence of what you believe inside is what you do outside it's how you treat people and and he says here what does it profit brethren if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works can that faith save him? Again, just as we said at the beginning, this does not negate or undermine the doctrine of justification by faith. There have been some theologians that in the early days wanted to get this out of the Bible because they thought James was talking about salvation is by works. No, James is very important because we're living in an era where there's a teaching on hyper-grace which is that once you're saved, once you've confessed Christ, you can do anything you want because all your, everything, all your sins are covered and paid for. Well, that's just completely unscriptural. It's completely unscriptural. I don't want to go off into that right now. But what James is talking about is if you really have faith in your heart, it's going to show up on the outside. In other words, if there's love in your heart, somehow it's going to begin to leak out. Just as it says, you know, out of, the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's really down inside of you, stub your toe in the middle of the night. If you want to know what's really down inside of you, it's not what you do and say in church. It's what comes out under pressure. And so it's not just what we believe inside. It's the evidence of what we believe, really believe, because you can think you believe one thing. I was talking to somebody the other day that was going through a very challenging time, and you find out what you really believe when the bottom falls out of your basket. 
You find out what you really believe when you get that doctor's report that you weren't expecting and your world goes upside down. Now you find out what you really believe, not what you think you believe. The good news is this, God already knows. He knows where you really are and He wants you to know where you really are because God will come to where you really are. He won't come to where you think you are. So if, if this is the measure of faith, and this was when I first got saved, and I think, wow, I'm a faith giant, because I come to church and praise God, I read my Bible every day, I just feel really confident, and you think you're over here, and God knows, no, you've really only taken two steps. And one of those was 20 years ago. <laughs> and this is where you really are? When, when, God, when, you're, when God works with you, this is where He's going to come to, because God is a God of truth. He only deals in truth. So if I think I'm a faith giant and say all these wonderful things to God, He's going to come to where I really am. I need to find out where I really am. And realize when I find out where I really am, that's when God can begin to work with me. But if I think I'm somewhere I'm not, and life will show that to you eventually. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We don't want to believe for them, you don't have to. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. They say, how come He hasn't delivered me out? Because you've got to exercise your faith <laughs> and apply your faith. God expects us to grow. If you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years and you have never exercised your faith, that's like having a child that's 30 years old and you're still spoon-feeding them. God's a good parent. He expects us to grow. So He'll stop spoon-feeding you. And when you get hungry enough, you begin to ask, how come I'm hungry? How come mama's not feeding me anymore? Now you're in a place to learn, oh, maybe I need to chew the food myself. Maybe I need to swallow the food myself. Maybe I need to actually go to the grocery store and spend some of my money and pay for the food myself. Maybe I need to learn to cook. Maybe I need to learn to do some of this myself. Maybe I need to learn to take the Word of God and put it inside of me and meditate on that Word, do the work of putting that Word inside of me so that under the pressure that's what's going to come out instead of when something goes wrong, immediately picking up my phone and calling somebody else who has done the work, who has built up their faith, who has applied their faith, and, and rely on their work to do for me what I should be doing for myself. So God not only come to where you are, He'll expect you to grow. So if things that used to work for you in faith aren't working anymore, maybe you need to ask the question, is there something I should be doing that I'm not doing? I'm not talking about working for that. I'm talking about having your faith to grow. And That's another message I wasn't planning to get into, but okay. All right, well, we've got to bring this to an end. All right. What is a prophet of man, my brethren, if someone says to him, I have faith but he doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? Or if a brother and sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart, be in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't give him the things that are needed for their body, what does that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's put it this way. Faith by itself, if it does not have corresponding actions, is useless. What if God just sat in heaven saw us all headed for hell. I love him so much. I love him so much. Jerry, I just love him so much. Bob, I just, I love him so much. Ron, oh, <laughs> gonna go to hell. Oh, it's terrible. I love him so much. 
What time's the Patriot game on? <laughs> See, God didn't just feel love. When you truly feel it, when you're truly touched with compassion, you're moved by it. You have to do something. So the other question then is, if I'm not moved to do those things, do I really have that compassion in me? Or in some cases, I've just got it bottled up by other things. So what he's saying is the proof of where you really are on the inside is what are those corresponding actions on the outside. If you followed that, if you followed that Levite or that, uh, or that um, uh, uh, priest around and went to the church with them, they were doing everything right. And you had no idea what was going on in their heart. But when they could walk down the street and see this man half dead, naked over there, and look at him and just go the other way, you wonder what was in their heart. You don't have to wonder a whole lot. But here you've got a Samaritan. He's, he's detested by the Jews. And, 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 and he doesn't go to church and worship the right way and do that. But he's moved with compassion to the point that he has no limit on what he's going to do because he's touched with this man's needs. And Jesus says, that man has more of the love of God in him than the priest and the Levite. When you've done it unto the least of these. It's not earning your salvation. Just as giving of what you have to people isn't earning anything, but it's evidence of what's on the inside. So that if I'm not doing that, that ought to cause me to question, God, is there something wrong inside? Is there some blockage inside? I'm not talking about questioning your salvation, but somehow out of ignorance or, or selfishness, maybe there's selfishness that needs to be dealt with. Maybe there are things that need to be dealt with. I'm going to end with this next verse. Two verses, John 17. Just put them up there, John 17, 23. Jesus is now talking to His Father about us. He's talked to them about Him. He's talked to His Father about His disciples. And now He's talking about those that have believed on Me through their, their name, through their writing. And that's us. And His prayer is that I be in them to the Father, that He be in us, and that you, Father, be in Me, that we may be made perfect or complete in one, that the world may come to know that you sent Me and have loved them, that's us, as or as much as you have loved me. Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 2 says, He's not ashamed to be called our brother. Some of you have families where you've got somebody in your family that's the black sheep, and you kind of look down at Stan or Harry or Grace or whatever it was, or maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one that's kind of, you know, you're the cookie one because you go to church every Sunday and for that long and, you know, and you carry a Bible with you and, you know. But even in the, you're, even at your worst day, Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. He's not ashamed to be identified with you. Wow. 
And this is maybe the most astounding statement in the Bible. And remember, Jesus is talking to his Father, so you know they're talking the truth to each other. And that they would know, that they would know that you, that you have loved them, the least of them, you and me, even as you've loved me, Jesus. Show the next verse in John. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, so that the love with which you've loved me, the love with which God has loved Jesus, may be in them, and that I may be in them. It's all over the Bible. From the beginning to the end, God is not satisfied in dwelling in heaven. God was not satisfied dwelling in a tabernacle of tents in the Old Testament. God was not satisfied dwelling in the temple of Solomon. God was not satisfied dwelling in flesh and walking among us in Palestine, in Galilee, through all that region. He was not satisfied with that. He will not be satisfied until He's dwelling in us. That they may be filled with all of my fullness. God wants to fill His body, His church, with Himself. And He is, above everything else, love. But our minds, our prejudices, our attitudes, our insecurities, all those things that have developed in our flesh, in our thinking over all the years of our life, limit what God is able to do through us, though He wants to. And so what this has all been about is to challenge us so we'll renew our minds and learn to think the way He thinks. So here's your exercise. In this week, especially this Christmas week, where some of you are going to have contact with family members that aren't saved yet. You may have contact with some family members that you look at and say, there's no way they could ever be saved. Or should be. <laughs> there may be long hurts going back over years. It may be somebody else at work. Somebody that's an enemy that's really persecuting you. You need to ask yourself, all right, how does Jesus see them? I know how I see them. How does Jesus see them? And if you begin to look at them as if Jesus is one with them. Jesus wants to live in them. They're valuable to Him. They're just as valuable to Him as you and I are. Maybe, just maybe, it will change our attitude towards them and will allow Him to do through us, for them, what He wants to do. Let's pray. Father, what we've heard this morning are very challenging things. They don't fit in with our normal thinking. Our thinking is based on merit and on who's good and who's not and what's deserved and what's not deserved. But you're telling us that you want the church to do unto the least of these, to do unto the least of these as you would do unto them. Father, that's going to take something changing in us. And Paul's prayer to the, for the church at Ephesus is that you would strengthen them by your Spirit 
in their inner man so that Christ could live in them and they could be filled up with all of His fullness and that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And Father, as we prepare to close right now in this week of Christmas, when there's celebrations and all kinds of family things going on, we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us for whatever lies ahead this week, that we may be filled with all of your fullness, and that our hearts would be open to those they've not been open to before, and help us to see people that we run across this week, especially those that we think are not deserving. Help us to see Jesus in them so that our attitudes towards them may be yours. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.